Hello, and welcome to the Forward Thinking Podcast by CS2. I'm Xander Broffel, Director of Marketing Operations, and joining me today for the second week in a row is our friend, Grant Booth. Grant Booth is a senior Salesforce consultant for us at CS2. Welcome, Grant. Thanks, Xander. Glad to be on again. Yeah, so happy to have you. Um, for anybody who's listening and may have missed last week's episode, uh, Grant and I go through what is technical debt uh, and really focus on the business impacts and how you can get this escalated as a project uh, for something that you can really start to take action on. Today, what we're going to be doing is really diving into the weeds. Um, so we're going to do our best to make this a an engaging podcast for our listeners. Um, however, we are on YouTube for you just have to look for the forward thinking podcast on YouTube. Um, this may be a really good episode for you to actually watch because Grant will be sharing his screen graphs, examples. Um, so definitely, if you have the opportunity, pull this up on YouTube and watch us from there. But like I say, we want to make this as great of an episode as we can for all of our audio listeners. So thank you so much for joining. Grant, all right, technical debt. We're getting into the weeds today. What would <laughs> oh, you yeah. say is like the most common um error message or situation that you see that just really calls out that this is a technical debt issue? Of course. Um, the number one thing I focus on with these projects is the CPU limit in Salesforce and any errors happening related to that. It is a really strong indicator that there may be a lot of either badly designed or not optimal automation running in the background or just old automation that's accumulated over time. New things were added, old things weren't turned off, uh, and it's gotten to a point where it's causing things to actually break. Got it. Okay. So where would somebody see this error message kind of show up? How, 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 is, how is it something that, that like visualizes itself to, uh, to our listeners? It's generally going to be showing up in uh, error logs related to, error, to integrations. Uh, people who are doing their day-to-day -day work uh, inside of Salesforce probably aren't going to run into this. I mean, they might if it's really bad. <laughs> but <laughs> mostly it becomes a problem at scale, and integrations are going to be operating at scale. So, for example, someone creating or updating a single lead in the Salesforce interface probably isn't going to run into this because all that automation is only running for a single record when they're doing their work. Um, but for, say, an integration like Marketo, as an example, or another marketing automation platform, really anything that's connecting into Salesforce via the API, if it's a well-designed integration, it's going to be sending new or updated records over to Salesforce uh, in batches of 200 for the sake of, of efficiency with those API calls and for the sake of speed. But all of that automation running in Salesforce, whether it is Apex code, workflow rules, process builders, or the most recent feature uh, for Salesforce automation flows, um, it's going to run quite differently for multiple records than it does for one record. And so it's really important that all that automation is optimized to run in batches in order to handle the kinds of updates that your integrations are doing. 
And so uh, for anybody who's done much work as, say, a Marketo administrator, you've probably, uh, well, there's a good chance you've encountered this error before, anything that mentions the Apex CPU time limit being exceeded. That is happening because uh, the system is trying to sync up a batch of updates into Salesforce for a particular object, say the lead object. Um, and all of that automation running in Salesforce is causing that update to take more than 10 seconds. If it takes more than 10 seconds, Salesforce reserves the right to cancel the operation and throw an error and roll back whatever change it was trying to do. And so it's important to note that this isn't just like a warning. It's not just uh, an email alert that's flooding your inbox and, and being annoying. <laughs> it means that data is failing to sync from one system uh, into Salesforce or from multiple systems into Salesforce. Uh, and it's it's a serious problem that could cost you money. Absolutely. Um, we were talking last week a little bit about like some of the some of the common scenarios and just to revisit that. Um, you know, this could be doing a list upload. Um, mm -hmm. You just got done spending tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars going to an event or hosting an event. You want to make sure that all the people that you've gathered from all of the booth visitors and demos that you've done are making it into Salesforce and into your sales team's hands. And uh, so this is this is definitely a common space that I see it is, you know, maybe you get 30 of your leads that sync over properly and then all of a sudden they stop. And then you start to look into the notifications on the Marketo side or within a specific record in, in activity logging and you start mm -hmm. to see that error message. Exactly. Um, and it'll be popping up probably on a daily basis if it's uh, gotten gotten especially bad. Uh, it will be pretty easy to find in that Marketo error log, for example. Got it. Got it. And and Grant, I'm looking at the example that you have here, CRM mm -hmm. Fusion. It, it, is this CRM Fusion, this specific oh. uh, uh, thing? Is that what's causing it? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, so that I'm assuming is referencing like a managed package running in Salesforce. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is the automation that was running when it finally hit that limit, but it's not necessarily the biggest contributor to the limit. It could just be that the 20 things that ran before it consumed, you know, 9.9 .9 seconds. And then this is what ran at second 9.9 .9 and put it over the limit. Uh, and so <laughs> thus encountered the error, right? Got and it. so it's, it's, it's a common source of confusion that people will see the, the managed package or whatever operation shows up here in the error and then reach out to that vendor and be like, hey, your package is causing problems. Um, that's a common thing with uh, our partner Full Circle, uh, where if there's other inefficient automation running on, say, the campaign or campaign member or opportunity uh, that's using a bunch of time, then that can change Full Circle into like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Essentially, mm, okay. when it gets installed, yeah. and it'll show, it'll show it as though full circle is what's causing the error, but it's actually just that it was when full circle was running that the error finally happened because it pushed it over that limit. Got it. Yeah, I think that I think that's an important message for anybody who's listening. Is like it's very common. I you just spent all this time implementing a new tool, 
And then if this thing is cause is is showing up, if you are starting to see these CPU timeouts, it can start to bring a lot of like frustration for stakeholders. And so they may mm-hmm. be coming to you saying, well, why did we implement this brand new tool in it? And the, and the conversation really needs to be, it's not necessarily that new tool, but you now have a, enough automation in place that you have to start taking a look at this technical debt. Exactly. Uh, imagine like a game of Jenga. If there's any Jenga fans out there, <laughs> but it's, it's gone on round after round and you have this increasingly uh, elaborate and unstable tower, right? And then it's that last block that sends the whole thing tumbling down, but it doesn't mean that the problem was that last block, but that it's that last sense. block that's going to show up in the error message here. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. So Grant, we've identified what the CPU timeout limits are. Um, what are the what are some of the um, key projects or or key elements in Salesforce that you would focus on if you are running into this problem? What what should what should people be uh, investigating? Well, I would I would start by uh, reviewing. Well, start with process builders on that particular object. So, for example, this happened on a lead. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go into Salesforce and investigate what process builders are running on the lead. Um, And the reason I focus on process builders is because compared to uh, other automation in Salesforce, they seem to be the least efficient when running at scale. Process builders were um, a really powerful and, and useful feature at the time that have since been replaced with more efficient and, and more powerful features in Salesforce since then. Uh, and so there were, there used to be, it, it used to be the case that you had to use a process builder to do certain things. That's no longer the case, but it was for quite a while. And that's why there's a good chance there's a lot of them running in your Salesforce org. Because uh, it used to be the only option besides Apex code to get certain things done. And I still uh, hear I still hear people today, like when I'm working on projects where they'll be like, oh, well, we could build a process builder here. So it's not something it, like it seems like it's still being used by plenty of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you'll find a lot of uh, older documentation that says to use it. Right. Like if you're trying to figure out how to do something, you're running a search and trying to figure out how to implement something in Salesforce, there's a good chance you'll come across a document from a few years ago that says to do it with the process builder. Now there, there's nothing that you, nothing I can think of at the moment, <laughs> uh, nothing I can think of at the moment that requires a process builder um, instead of a flow. There's, there's really no use in, no, no reason to use them anymore. <laughs> So right now, Grant, you have something pulled up on your uh, on your presentation. I'm just wondering, can you can you explain what it is that we are that we were seeing there? Absolutely. Uh, this is from the Salesforce Architects website, uh, architect.salesforce.com, and it's a breakdown of different types of automation running in Salesforce and how much of that CPU time uh, they consume on average for some tests that this uh, team at Salesforce ran. Uh, It is a a very long article uh, that's kind of like all sorts of best practices surrounding uh, record triggered automation. But the particular graphic I'm looking at is comparing 
different types of Apex, workflow rules, flows, and process builder, and how much CPU time they take up. And what they found was that if it's automation doing a single record save to uh, like the same record that triggered the automation, so for example, a change to a lead that triggers automation that updates the same lead, uh, a before save flow, which is the best way to handle those same record field updates, is like 150 times more efficient than a process builder. Uh, it's huge. That's that's enormous, yeah. And this is a fairly recent capability with flows. Uh, again, it's it's a fairly new option to be able to to do these. Got it. Okay. And then, and then in the graph, like as, as you labeled all of that, all of the different automation options, process builder is on the far right as the least efficient mm -hmm. methodology. So if you have five, six, seven different process builders or more running on an object, you can see where this, where all of that CPU time can really start to be taken up. Right. Exactly. And it, it doesn't scale as well as, as flows do when it's for updates involving multiple records is okay. what I've found. Fair flows enough. are really good about, they do this like intelligent batching for uh, pulling, pulling uh, multiple records that are being updated in the same operation together when it's actually making changes into the Salesforce database. Uh, and it's, it's very efficient at scale. Okay, very, very cool. Um, so, are there any other benefits to moving to flow besides the CPU uh, efficiencies that we're seeing here? It can do more at this point. Uh, I think it's more intuitive to work with. So here's another slide. Let me see if I can expand the images here. So this first one is uh, from a process builder. And what it's doing here is responding to changes to an opportunity. So uh, like the stage changing on an opportunity, and then it's stamping date fields to say when that stage changed. Um, I find the process builder relatively, like the process builder interface to be relatively clunky compared to flow. So okay. for example, in this image, I show uh, a flow that's doing essentially the same thing just try and send that to the background. And it, to me, it really gives you the ability to, to lay out what's happening um, in a diagram that seems to make the most sense, like intuitively, as far as the order of operations and what's happening when. Yeah, with flow, I mean, it, it it's literally a flow chart. It's, it, it's branching out, it's showing exactly what steps um, it's exactly. going to take. Um, it's giving you different choices. So kind of like you would just whiteboard on on a whiteboard, you can build it out that way, which I which is definitely nice. Exactly. And I'm I'm a very visual learner. And so I really like being able to build things in a way that makes sense to me visually, as opposed to feeling more like a a big formula or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the auto layout and flow compared to freeform. If anybody has messed around with these, use the auto layout. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's it, it's sort of like 
I love I love the Marketo um, interface uh, personally, mm-hmm. but I also really like working within HubSpot where I do have a little bit more of a visual like like workflow. So if anybody's ever worked between those two different sort of systems, I know that Eloqua also is very much like workflow sort of focused. It's nice to be mm-hmm. able to see that, and it's very easy to explain it to other people for sure. Are there exactly. like technical capabilities that Flow has that you don't get with other automation? Uh, I think, yeah. Uh, so Flow is able to set record variables in a way that I found really useful. It, okay. It's sort of like, so for example, if you've got a flow that's responding to uh, something related to a, a lead, it's able to create within the flow sort of like a fake lead. I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this to to people who haven't worked with this or worked with Apex or something like that. Um, but it's essentially a lead variable that could be created, uh, like copied from an actual lead when the flow is starting. And then it makes modifications to this lead variable, this like theoretical lead. And then at the end of the flow, it actually commits those changes into the database. Uh, and it's a very efficient way of doing things when it comes to, to CPU time and, um, and other limits in Salesforce as well that I, I won't dive into right now. For sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to find what that variable would be, but it's like you're you're almost taking mental note of mm-hmm. okay, this is what that field is. Okay, it falls into this category. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna actually like categorize it differently. And then you can call back to that later. Um exactly. definite I mean it, it it's a very powerful functionality to be able to use. Exactly. Uh it also has loops. Uh, you can set up loops and cycle through all of the, like all of the records in a collection of records, okay. and apply logic uh, to each one as you go through the loop. It, it really, for anyone who's coded before, it feels like coding, except you're doing more of like a drag and drop as you're setting things up. Awesome. So, um, you know, I, I I know that the topic isn't necessarily a deep dive into flow. So, thank you for yeah, of for, for taking me through through that a little bit. But you know, I I I think that it's valuable to know like a technical debt project can also introduce new functionality, features, and scalability outside of just removing the error messages. Um, exactly. For sure. Right. Exactly. And this this is why uh, in the in the last episode, one of the things I emphasized was. Uh, just making sure that your admin team learns flow and learns it well, because there's a lot that you can do with it um, and a lot of efficiency gains and, and new new functionality with it. But if you don't know it very well, then you bear the risk of architecting things poorly and potentially making things worse. So yes. learn flow and learn it well. Um, I wanted to share a few key differences. Uh, really quickly with flows. So one being that you can actually filter which records enter the flow at all. Uh, not something you can do with Process Builder, and that's part of what makes them relatively inefficient. Uh, process Builder is actually going to fire for any create or update, uh, and it's going to run through every decision node in the Process Builder, whether it applies to that record or not. In a flow, you can actually filter uh, and say that you only want it to fire in very specific circumstances. And that way, it doesn't take nearly as much of that CPU time unless the record actually applies to the flow. 
So in this particular example, I'm filtering it so that it only applies to new opportunities or opportunities where the stage changed as part of the update that happened. And additionally, you can have it run before save rather than after save. And that um, chart that I shared previously from the Architects website shows just how much more efficiently a before save flow can be. Can you can you explain explain the difference between before save and after save? Absolutely. Um, before save is sort of like, suppose you're updating a lead. Um, a before save flow or before save apex is going to intercept that lead on its way into the system and make modifications to it before it actually gets sent into the Salesforce database and saved as a lead. Uh, an after save flow will allow that save to happen and and then run the automation. And if the automation, unless of course you set it to be asynchronous, that's kind of a whole other topic. <laughs> uh, but that automation, if it encounters an error, then it will roll back the change that triggered it. Um, and of course you can't always make something before save. It's really just if it's only updating the same record that triggered it. Uh, for a number of other applications, uh, it, it has to be after save. So for example, uh, suppose a lead matches to an account through your uh, whatever automation you're using for lead to account matching, and then you want to update a field on the related account. That's something that has to be after save because it's doing an update to a related object. Um, as opposed to just an update to that lead. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So if if I've got a, you know, my my lead status field updates, I could do a mm -hmm. before save flow to timestamp that stage change in a, in, exactly. a, in a in a field that exists on the lead. But if I'm operating off of a related record, I'm always going to have to do that as an after save. Both of them are still more efficient than using process builder. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, still go down this path, but you you know, your admin will be able to decide which one to to go with. Exactly. Uh and there's also the option with flow to make things that can run asynchronously if it's an after save flow, which basically that means it allows whatever triggered it to save and then a few moments later it kicks off this automation uh and lets it run independently. And if that automation hits some kind of error, there's some kind of problem, it does not roll back the changes that triggered it. Um, and so if it's something that doesn't have to happen immediately, and it's okay that if it hits an error, it doesn't roll back whatever you're trying to do, um, it's a great candidate to be done asynchronously instead. Because then even if it encounters errors down the road, or if it uses a lot of processing power, it's not going to um, to prevent that original change from happening and say, throw those CPU limit errors to an integration like Marketo, for example. Got it. Do you have any examples of any like flow that you've set up recently that's asynchronous? Um, yes. So I recently built one that copied the UTM fields so the, those web tracking fields like UTM campaign, UTM source, et cetera, 
and it would copy those from the related lead or contact when a campaign member gets created and saves those to corresponding campaign member fields and then clears those fields on the leader contact. Uh, that's something that seemed acceptable to have run asynchronously. Nice. And that's really helpful because there's there's oftentimes other automation that may be running on campaigns. So as we think exactly. about, you know, syncing from a marketing automation platform, you want to make sure that that's being as uh, as low lift as possible. Exactly. Making that asynchronous means that it can save those changes to the leader contact when it's, say, updating the UTM fields. And then a moment later, Salesforce runs the automation to... Uh, to copy those to the campaign member, as Got opposed it. to requiring that automation runs in that moment. And if it takes too long, it causes a sync error with Marketo. Got it. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, Grant, anything else that you want to uh, share around the CPU timeout? Uh, otherwise, I kind of want to dive into you know what this project can look like, kind of the steps of the project. I, I think we can go ahead and dive into the project. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, talk to me about this. Like, what's the? How do you approach running any of these projects uh, to do technical debt reconciliation? Uh, absolutely. So one of the things I emphasized last time was trying to be as scientific as as you can be, and the importance of setting up a couple different developer sandboxes as part of the project. So. I'll set up one sandbox that I reserve as just a copy of what the production instance of Salesforce was like at the time we started the project. And it's sort of like my control group in the experiment. Um, so I don't touch any of its automation. It's just there for running tests to measure how long things take. Uh, and then I set up another sandbox that I actually do the building in. And then when the project is, is complete, or at least it's complete for the particular object we're working on, I'll run the same test with the same test data that I did in my control sandbox in the sandbox I've been doing the work in. Uh, and then I'm able to use Visual Studio Code's Salesforce Log Analyzer, which sounds a lot scarier than it is. It's actually pretty easy to use. <laughs> I don't, I'm not actually getting in there and doing any coding. I'm just using a particular extension that Salesforce offers for it that analyzes log files. Um, but I'll, I'll bring up a list of test data. So for example, a hundred fake leads that I um, just set up as a spreadsheet with their first name, last name, email, company, lead source, you know, your, your most basic information about a lead. Don't get too crazy with it. Um, but I'll try importing that in the control sandbox. I'll have the developer console open in Salesforce so that I can easily get that log file. Um, I download the log file, I open it with Visual Studio Code, and then I just right click on it and hit, uh, it's like log file analyzer or something like that. Uh, but that gets me to this screen, which is a table of different automation running in Salesforce and how much time it took. And it can be a little bit cryptic. You might have to look a few things up. For example, here it's showing the biggest contributor as being Flow, but that's actually Process Builder because oh. Process Builder is an older version of Flow. And I think at some point 
uh, it must have been a different API version. It stopped being labeled as process builder and started being flow or or vice versa. I'm not completely <laughs> sure. Um, but I ran tests and I was like, okay, definitely that is due to process builders, not due to, to flow. Um, but you can order it by how much time it took and then get a sense of how many times that kind of automation is executing as part of, say, your list import. Uh, and then I'll copy this into a spreadsheet. And then I'm able to come up with graphs like this. So uh, what I'm showing here is the results from that insert of 100 leads into, into Salesforce. And the red is from before I made the changes, building out new flows and turning off the old process builders. Uh, and then the blue is after the changes. And uh, for those who aren't seeing this visual rep representation, there's a lot more red than blue. <laughs> okay. It's like, it, it's so, a bar chart that, that process builder, again, kind of similar to the, to the previous chart that we looked at is, is through the roof red right. in the before, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then afterwards it's, it's gone. Um, and basically the, the Y axis here uh, going vertically is uh, the time in milliseconds uh, for how long something took, whereas the x-axis is is what kind of thing was running it, so where what kind of automation was running. So process builders, validation rules, managed packages like Lean Data or Zoom Info, uh, and then like uh, the new flow builders, SQL queries happening, workflow rules, etc. It's all all drawn out here. And again, there's a there was a lot more CPU time getting used for this basic insert of 100 leads before our changes versus after. And uh, I really love this graph because it shows in a very visual way the impact of the project on the system. Grant, I don't know if you if you dug into this. I find it interesting that in the after, like even other automation has been improved. Mm -hmm. Lean data is lower. Um, validation rules are lower. Do you have any explanation for why that is? Right, there's a number of things that are going to get reran multiple times throughout a record save uh, to make sure that the changes aren't violating something else. Um, and different, like Apex code, for example, might be listening for for multiple changes happening. Uh, so, my understanding is that it's going to run validation rules when the change is first coming into the system. And then if something else responds to that, like workflow rules or process builder or whatever, it's going to then run validation rules again. Mm. And because I moved so much into before save flows and also the, the flows were built so that they're, they're only running for changes that actually apply to them. A lot of those other uh, more uh, foundational features of Salesforce, like validation rules, for example, uh, are not happening as many times during the operation. Got and it. so it, it actually ends up making everything more efficient across the board. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's great. Um, another part of the testing we did here was focused on user experience. So I ran a five tests and averaged the time that it took to do the insert or update. Uh, I found that for a user creating a single lead, we reduced the time that it took for that to save by uh, like 23%, roughly. Um, but more importantly, and this is where it emphasizes this difference of scale, 
for an admin who's inserting 100 leads in a mass import, uh, the time it took for that operation to complete went down by 60%. And it would be something on that level for all of your integrations that are likewise inserting or updating records in bulk. Nice. And a 60%, if you've ever been an admin who's doing a list import, having it take 60% less time is huge. It's huge, yeah. And that's not even talking the percentage of time where it just fails and then you right. have to do it again. <laughs> the new, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Grant, is there a reason why you chose 100 records for your test? Uh, right. Um, so before the changes, inserting 200 records was actually failing entirely. It was hitting that CPU limit error. And so I wasn't able to complete a test on 200 records, um, which... Uh, I think I've mentioned it a few times, but to uh, just make sure it's clear, 200 is that maximum batch size that's going to be coming into Salesforce over the API from an integrated system like Marketo. And so it's really important that Salesforce is able to able to handle batches of 200 records. Yeah. Uh, but again, in this case, I was hitting CPU limit errors when I tried to do 200, so I had to test with 100 instead. Perfect. Uh, and I want to make sure that that before versus after, like that it's the exact same test. Again, trying to be as scientific as possible. Great. Are there any other data points that you'd like to show? Um, I do have some questions around the build itself. Uh, that's Those are the central things for, for data points. Cool. As far so as, yeah. So as you're as you're tackling this, you are you are taking all of your before information, and it's nice that you have a, a developer sandbox, so that way you you don't necessarily have to like do all of this testing and then go into a build. But you probably will, right? right? Because as a part of ga gaining buy-in on this project, you're probably going to want to like actually show why this is an issue. Exactly. So this might be the right time after you've kind of gathered all of that information to bring those stakeholders back together and start to say, okay, this is the reason why I want to tackle this project. I can't import more than a hundred records. It fails. So I can't use, you know, standard integrations. And then here's all of the, here's all of the data, which again, as we were mentioning last week, if you are showing data, you're going to more likely get buy-in. Um, exactly. what, what do you, what do you recommend like doing as you go into build? Cause oftentimes what you're doing is, is you're, you're taking process builders and, and building them into flows. Any tips or tricks that you can give while mm -hmm. you're doing that project? Absolutely. Um, step one, I mean, don't just choose a random thing and get in there and start building, uh, start by cataloging. So once you've, once you've ran those tests, so you have an idea of just how bad the problem is and which objects are maybe most impacted, most likely to have those CPU limit errors, uh, start by doing a catalog of all the automation running on that object. Um, I wish I could share one of these. I feel like it would be hard to do so without revealing which client it was for and and showing uh, private information. Um, so we won't. We won't. But Yeah, we won't. <laughs> But make a list of all the process builders and all the workflow rules running for that object, um, starting with the focus on the process builders. Workflow rules, not so much something to worry about because they're relatively efficient. Um, 
but make a list of, of all that automation and give a description of, of what it does. And then based on what it does, note down what it could potentially be replaced with. So is it only making same record field updates? In which case it could be a before save flow. Uh, is it needing to update related records or do API calls or send an email alert or something like that? In that case, it has to be after save, but maybe it could be asynchronous depending on whether or not you want it to throw an error if it saves. Sometimes if something fails, you you want it to throw the error, right? Um, so uh, make, make a list of, uh, ha have a column that's tracking what you would potentially replace it with and thinking through that. Uh, I really like to do benefit versus effort columns as mm. well. So I'll rate like one through five, how difficult will it be to build this replacement? And one through five, how much benefit will we get from building this replacement? Uh, if if you find that something may be particularly uh, inefficient or confusing and needs to be overhauled for different reasons, then that'll be a higher benefit. Uh, and that'll help you prioritize what you'd start with first and identify low-hanging fruit. Because there could be things that are overcomplicated or using a lot of resources, but are actually really easy to replace. Got it. And I imagine and you want to hit those that as you're cataloging, you're also finding things that don't need to be rebuilt, right? <laughs> exactly. We oh, live yeah. in the world of adding. <laughs> if I see something, <laughs> yeah. If you, for example, you notice a field that maybe has like 2014 in its API name, uh, there's a good chance that you know that's not being used anymore. Um, and often I'll find things that like the business process that it was built for is no longer being used and it's, it's just no longer relevant to the business, but the automation is still running. And in the case of a process builder running for every update to that object. Um, and so I'll find a lot of things that I can just turn off generally. Um, and that is obviously a huge yeah. win. Yeah. That's the, that's the best thing that you can probably do. Right. And so uh, once I've done that, I've done the cataloging, I've figured out what to prioritize. I'll go through and actually start building out flows um, and testing those flows, making sure that they have the same functionality or better functionality that the process builders did. Excellent. And uh, getting those changes staged. Sometimes I found the more difficult part of the project is the coordination with all the different stakeholders to make sure that this gets rolled into production in a smooth manner. I'm sure everybody can relate to that, yeah. right? But it's it's absolutely worth it. And most of the time you're not doing a lot of, like it's not a lot of change management from a business process perspective, because usually you're just trying to reproduce the current state capability. Exactly. So I suppose that's yeah, we're more not of necessarily implementing something. Yeah, new. I suppose that it's more of coordinating with, hey, I'm rolling out CPQ in a week. <laughs> Let's not rebuild all of our <laughs> flows or just the overall testing. because There's so many variables that you're updating at once. Yeah. Right, right. And of course, you can a lot of this you can roll out piecemeal. You know, you don't have to replace every single process builder on the opportunity object at the same time. Got it. You can choose a couple do your testing, roll those into production, test in production, and then go on to the next couple. Great. Um, or handle things like one business process at a time. 
it's easy to to start with your scope being too big and then get overwhelmed and and uh not make progress in general yeah right? so take things piece by piece where you can. We, we've kind of joked about like the the phase phase of projects and how phase two never happens <laughs> yeah. but i always say like if you plan for phase two and you give phase two actual dates it will happen so you can always use right. that as as a as a method or you know if you if you do sprint planning from an agile perspective you can say sprints four and five we're going to take care of this sprint six seven we're going to take care of that and it's a good way to break it up for sure exactly and yeah i mean testing is like half the project <laughs> and th that's true of most projects yeah. right requirements and testing the two <laughs> things that take the most time right <laughs> yeah <laughs> hopefully not so much requirements on this since you are doing a lot of rebuilds but the testing uh, i think is right. that much that much more important so you've got exactly. it built it's ready to launch um i see train on here what does training look like mm -hmm. So and I suppose this would be like an optional part of the project, but um, a lot of teams, I mean, you might not even have a sales, like an actual dedicated Salesforce admin. You might have like a sales ops person who's running Salesforce, uh, or you might not have a developer on staff uh, who's, who's familiar with like replacing Apex and things like that. Um, or you could just have someone who's very used to using Process Builder because it's worked worked great for a long time and is maybe even a little resistant to learning flows because I mean, they're kind of scary when you get started, there's a lot yeah. to them. Um, and so it's a great opportunity uh, for training. If you're working with an agency like ours, for example, uh, where we've got a couple different experts uh, on our team who know flow really well and can train your admins on how to build effectively with them. Cool. And then we we get it launched, we get it through, and now it's really showing that that benefit that you were expecting, right? How do you, how do you go about doing that? Mm -hmm. We've talked about it a little bit, but let's just revisit, um, especially around the visualization piece. Oh, exactly. Uh, take the time to set up some reports to show to show the difference that the project made. So those same tests that I mentioned running in the control sandbox at the start of the project to demonstrate how bad the problem is, um, run those exact same tests in the sandbox that you've done your work in to show how much it's improved and then get them on the same bar graph. So you can show side by side, here's how bad things were before, here's how much better they are now, uh, and have that data uh, available to justify the time that you've spent. Got it. Love that. Fantastic. Because these these projects can take a lot of time, and it's important to be able to show, like, oh, we we spent forty hours doing this, and but you know, look what we have to show for it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, all of the visualization is great for the tech debt. Um, make sure that you're bringing it back to some of the some of the tips that we were sharing last week, um, especially around you know, giving the value to the business process and the customer experience and all of those sorts of things. Um, anytime that you can really relate it back to what somebody will feel, um, you're going to, you know, get that much more of a benefit. I think inherently your operations teams are going to be thrilled because they're the ones that are living in it day to day. Um, but as you're trying to, you know, 
prove that value back to the business. Uh, really, you know, if you can find ways to relate it back to dollars, relate it back to we didn't miss this many MQLs, um, you will be much more effective. Exactly. Uh, and that that is the hardest part, for sure, because the way that, say, CPU limit errors can, can impact your production data is just really hard to gauge. You know that stuff is failing. It's hard to show how often and exactly what's failing and how much money that costs you. Um, but, but you want to get some kind of uh, representation of, of real data that can get the gist of it across. Absolutely. Grant, any closing thoughts that you have around the technical side of uh, technical debt remediation? Uh, just a couple of things I've, I've already emphasized that I'll, I'll repeat again. For your admin team, learn how to use Flow and learn how to use it well. Uh, do testing in batches. Don't just when, you, when you're building something new, don't just test it for how a single record runs through it. Test it for how 200 records run through it. Uh, and, and make sure that it's still working the way that it, that it should when you do. Uh, <laughs> I've seen way too many times that uh, something wasn't properly like load tested or tested in bulk, and then there was part of it that was failing. I've made the same myself, the same mistake myself sure. before. Um, and then lastly, look for low-hanging fruit. You, you don't have to fix everything all at once, but sometimes you can find things that are going to consume a lot of resources in Salesforce, uh, but can just be turned off or are really easy to replace, like an email alert or something. Uh, if there's a process builder that's sending an email alert, have a flow send that alert instead, turn off the process builder. It will, um, it will be really good for your system, but it's start by looking for things like that and, and tackle what you can handle um, in the time that you have. And it could be all it really takes to, to make the difference. It's fantastic. Grant, great pieces of advice there. Um, if you're going to take anything away, please take away that. Um, as we, as we think about tech debt, a very common, common cause of that is CPU timeout limits. Um, and, and we have provided you some really great, ways to tackle that. Um, primarily looking at process builders and moving those into flows. So Grant, thank you so much for joining us for the for the past two weeks to really dive in deep on this topic. Um, I do hope that it is very helpful for our listeners. I, I know I, I've learned a lot just in the short period of time that we've been talking through this. <laughs> um, I'm excited to take it back to some of my, some of my clients that I'm working with. <laughs> I'm excited to be working on those as well. No yeah. Doubt. I mean, at the end of the day, you're the one that's um, going to do the work. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you for your, for your thoughtful and excellent questions and looking forward to joining you sometime again in yes, the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the forward thinking podcast. If you enjoyed today's episodes, please give us a review on any of your podcast services. If you're watching us on YouTube today, because we had some great visuals, uh, please do leave us a like and comment below. Let us know what you think. This has been the forward thinking podcast. Have a great day.